Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners. Jonathan here. Did you miss me? Oh, I missed you. I really did. But I haven't forgotten about you. I've been working hard behind the scenes to get some amazing content for you. Today's interview is the first in a series of podcast episodes focusing on the macro side of social work. In 2017, Steve Burkhart, a professor from the Silberman School of Social Work at Hunter College in New York City, reached out to me and asked, why aren't there more episodes focusing on macro content? Now, this isn't the first time I've been asked why most of my episodes focus on micro practice. Well, the answer is simple. My clinical and research expertise is in micro practice, the work with individuals and families that I reference all the time on the podcast. Now, I know what practice issues are important. I know how to frame the issues. I know the experts. And I know whether my guests know what they are talking about. And I don't have anything against macro practice. I've worked as a community organizer. I've lobbied representatives. I've been involved in writing legislation. But I'm less confident in knowing how to be the arbiter of what you want to hear about regarding macro social work. So then Steve did something beautiful. He didn't just point out what's missing. He offered to help fill the gap. Not by being a guest, although we'll have Steve as a guest on the podcast soon. Steve's expertise is in macro social work. He knows the issues and he knows the people. Steve offered to help me come up with topics, guests, and some of the information necessary to set the stage in my introductions. So I took him up on it. And over the next few years, we'll bring you episodes that explore the macro side of social work. Why? Well, because whatever affects the pond affects the fish. And I was going to call this the Macro Social Work Podcast, but I was a little too late. In August 2018, Stephen Cummings, not to be confused with Steve Burkhart, started the Macro SW podcast as part of the amazing hashtag MacroSW Twitter chat. And you can learn more about that at macrosw.com forward slash podcast. Now, to kick things off for my version of a Macro Social Work podcast, we're going to have two giants in the field of social work, Dr. Darlene Bailey, former dean and now professor of social work at Bryn Mawr College, and Dr. Terry Mitzrahi, past president of the National Association of Social Workers and professor at the Silberman School of Social Work. In today's episode, Darlene and Terry will introduce the Special Commission to Advanced Macro Practice in Social Work. They serve as the co-chairs of the Special Commission, and they're going to be talking about how the Special Commission came about and what it seeks to accomplish over the coming years. Now, here's Darlene describing the origins of the Special Commission. There was a survey that was put out by ACOSA, the Association for Community Organization and Social Administration, as it was known then, to faculty members documenting the lack of support for macro content and also pointing out that there seemed to be a 
a diminution of um, attention paid to macro specializations or concentrations. This resulted in Jack Rothman putting out what we call affectionately the Rothman Report. And he recommended the establishment of a special commission to redress this imbalance between macro and micro practice, with both of them being direct practice, with macro being directly focused on organizations and communities and policy, and micro focusing directly on individuals, families, and small groups. The goal here is for us to increase our professional ability to influence and shape policy, increase leadership in social services, and to enhance community well-being in general. We believe that in so doing, we would be furthering not only the efficacy of the entire profession and the students that are prepared in our schools and programs, but ultimately better serving the clients as well, be the clients individuals or organizations or policy uh, practice as well. What we're trying to do here, and it's our intention, uh, it's rather ambitious, we've been told. We have a campaign of 20% 20 by 2020. Our goal is to increase enrollment in a macro concentration or a method for programs that identify a specialization to 20% of all master's level students countrywide by the year 2020. Our second goal is to ensure that the curricula of all BSW, baccalaureate level social work programs, and generalist master's MSW programs include a more equitable balance of macro and micro content. Essentially, we're looking to promote our profession's social justice ethos, especially given the present day society's increased inequities and inequalities economically, our deteriorating uh, community relations, looking again at the historical as well as the rise in institutional racism and sexism and heterosexism and all the isms that are so ingrained in, in all of us, as well as looking at our environmental challenges. So the time has come in some ways. The time has long been here for a special commission to advance macro practice and social work. But clearly, we've got a mandate and we're hoping to gain even more and more attention and impact. We're going to get to the rest of the episode in just a minute. But I wanted to say that if you want to learn more about the special commission, please head over to the ACOSA website at acosa.org. It's a membership organization that was founded in 1987 for community organizers, activists, nonprofit administrators, community builders, policy practitioners, students, and educators. And now, without further ado, on to episode 121 of the Social Work Podcast, the Special Commission on Macro Practice, an interview with Dr. Darlene Bailey and Dr. Terry Mitzrahi. Darlene and Terry, thank you so much for being here on the Social Work Podcast and talking with us today. Both of you have had these really amazing careers in social work, and I think, I think everybody's curious, how did you move from working with individuals and families to working on these larger systems issues, organizations, communities, and policy? 
Well, thank you, Jonathan. This is Darlene speaking. I'm, I know I can speak on behalf of Terry and myself and saying we are thrilled to, to be with you and everyone that's listening today to talk about the Special Commission to Advance Macro Practice and Social Work. We actually um, can talk about this through the, the language of moving from a moment to a movement. And to start, like good social workers know, you start where the client's at. So right now, Terry, uh, why don't you tell your story? I have a story as a young social work student uh, with a wonderful family that I was asked to help. And this family whose name I'll use, um, the pseudonym for uh, Mrs. Torres and her five kids, when I made a home visit, it was after school, they were all watching television. And I said, gee, five kids under the age of eight all watching television, which she said was her salvation. That was her tranquilizer. The kids were fixated on the TV. I realized that the oldest one, little Louie we called him, needed something more than every day coming home from school and watching TV. And I found out as a enterprising young social work student that there was a settlement house a few blocks away, a community center that had great after school programs. Why Mrs. Torres, aren't you using that program? And she said, because I'm afraid. I don't like the streets. She was afraid of the streets. It was a dangerous neighborhood, high crime, and she felt her kids were vulnerable. After some persuading, uh, little Louie went to the settlement house with me and her, um, but she still was afraid of moving him, getting him home. And so finally, it dawned on me that we had to go what we call from case to cause. You know, we had to go from the individual to the big, the bigger picture. If little Louie wasn't going there, why weren't the other students, other young uh, children going to the settlement house? And we found out that they needed, they weren't, they didn't understand it either. They thought the mothers were lazy or they didn't have enough gumption or they just couldn't understand why. And so what we realized when you ask the clients, and when you talk to the staff, we found out that they were afraid to walk their kids home. Winter time, 5 o'clock, it's already dark. So I helped them develop an escort program with young teenage volunteers. So it got teenagers involved in helping the younger kids walk home. The program doubled in numbers, and little Louie enjoyed his afternoons at school. And Mrs. Torres was very happy that she had him out of the house in a safe place. So that's, that was how I went from, in a sense, a caseworker, as we were called then, to a community organizer. I realized you had to go, you had to do more than just the individual advocacy, which social workers are wonderful at doing. They are great advocates, but they sometimes don't connect to the larger picture. Well, I was going to say that's, that's, that's such a great story because... Um, it talks about the assumptions that people have about why people are getting services, maybe the value of those services. But you really saw it as this is a larger systems issue. And unless we address that, then the sort of the amazing programs that are available aren't going to mean anything. And and so I, I love how you said case to cause. Uh, it's a really interesting way of saying that. And that is, um, that's Terry's journey that actually mirrors the journey of our entire profession. As we look historically, the profession actually went from cause 
to case to cause to case and we're we're hoping through the special commission for it to be case and cause and not an either or to bridge uh, the unfortunate usually academically induced gap between the individual and the organization and communities and policies that impact them all. So my journey is um, similar and just a little different. Uh, I started out probably not as precocious in terms of, like Terry did, uh, in terms of moving right from social work school into focusing more and realizing more that systems needed to be changed, but actually helping to create some systems. Uh, so after Columbia University School of Social Work, um, I started working with a population that had carried the tag of schizophrenia and set up an outpatient uh, center for them and then joined some other folks in setting up a community mental health center in uh, northern New Jersey, where my responsibilities were around crisis intervention and, uh, and intake 24-7. That, in that uh, context enabled me to realize over time that what we did in social work was usually try to fit, fix the people to fit the structures. And what I became immediately aware of is that we needed to actually change some of those structures. Again, not an either or. There are people that need uh, find ways to, to live in their communities, but sometimes the communities, their organizations, and a lot of the policies that they were living within and under, they needed to be changed. So my perspective uh, and my journey has been one of moving into administrative leadership, either in a community-based organization or in academia for close to a quarter of a decade now. Not quarter of a decade, quarter of a century. <laughs> so I, thought, I, was, I was like, oh my gosh, a quarter of a decade. So in that, in that, in over this period of time, uh, while Terry moved more into the policy and community organizing arena, I moved more into the other part of macro practice, which is looking at administration, management, and leadership, and working with those organizations and communities to actually help the families and the individuals. Again, that's um, uh, another nice example. I think um, folks hearing this, oftentimes we get caught up in um, the everyday demands of our jobs. And so if, if our job is to work with people with schizophrenia and to do this microclinical work, those are the demands, right? And so a lot of times we just kind of get stuck there. But it sounds like both of you saw larger uh, systems issues and, and you started to tackle it, which is um, definitely inspirational. Um, one of the questions that I have about the um, the special commission um, is uh, how did this um, special commission go from a moment to a movement, just like you all said that you had a moment uh, that that moved you from from case to cause? Great question. Uh, and you're right, it, the Special Commission actually came from a moment in time, and we credit the, the birthing of it from uh, Jack Rothman's report, and it's now lovingly known as D. Rothman Report. Um, I got a phone call one day saying, would I be a part of the Special Commission? And I said yes, and then a day or two later, I got a phone call saying, well, would you chair the Special Commission? 
And at that point, um, being the dean of a school, uh, of Bryn Mawr, where I, I recently stepped down from the Graduate School of Social Work and Social Research, as a good dean, you always say, sure, if. <laughs> and the if, I had two, two uh, stipulations. One was uh, to be able to bring on a, a research assistant to work with us, uh, in this case, the Special Commission and myself, and if I could have a co-chair. I don't have a middle name. If I did, it would be collaborate. Uh, co would be in there all the way. And I asked if someone would reach out to Terry Mizrahi. And they reached out to Terry, and thank goodness Terry said yes. So the special commission was born from a moment with Jack Rothman's report. And now we've literally turned over the last five years into a movement. We're small, but we've actually accomplished quite a bit because of all the people that are in the special commission network. So the, the 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 Rothman report identified these problems with the way the social work profession was sort of not moving forward with the more macro level concerns, um, sort of losing ground um, and, and losing this kind of historical legacy that social work had of really championing um, the cause. Right. Um, Five years, not much time in the big scheme of things. Um, I mean, unless you're six, in which case five years is an enormous <laughs> amount of time. But but in adult land, five years, not that much time. Um, what sort of successes has the commission had? So I would like to use continue to use our alliterations, you know, moment to movement, case to cause. And I would say that I want to talk both about process and product. So we really began with a group of kindred spirits. ACOSA, some of your viewers, your, your audience may not know that ACOSA stands for the Association for Community Organization and Social Administration, but ACOSA, uh, A-C-O-S-A, um, had, had a small group that always met at the Council on Social Work Education known as CSWE for some of your listeners. We had a small group and that group, we started to strategize as good organizers of how do we rebalance micro and macro in schools of social work. And a second goal that became a primary goal for us for a while called 20 by 2020. And 20 by 2020 is 20% of all schools of social work nationally that have specializations or concentrations in their, in their programs would have a macro concentration or specialization. So 20 by 2020 seemed like a long way away, Jonathan, back in 2013, <laughs> but it, it was a, um, as you said, it's a short time. We're now in 2018. And we've grown some. We've actually grown from a, a core group of about 30 uh, kindred spirits, meaning mostly faculty, field instructors, some practitioners around the country to a network. We call it our special commission network of about 500 of those kindred spirits now working in multiple arenas to both rebalance micro and macro in those programs that we call generalist um, or advanced generalist programs, 
uh, and those, and then to move to schools highlighting and increasing their uh, macro specialization. One one thing I just want to say about this, the vision, and one of the dispelling of myths that I think we will continue to do and need to do, and we can talk about a little later, is the self-fulfilling prophecy. So what do you hear from the deans and directors and chairs of departments? They don't want it. They don't want it. Who is the they? Students don't ask for this. Therefore, we don't offer the program. Well, if I can't imagine, that's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. How about if you offer the program and see if people come? So what we try to do is create the awareness that CO and, and macro more generally exist, that there are jobs out there, multiple jobs, that we had at that time 11 Congress people who, had, who were social work trained, that we had the heads of the biggest organizations in the country had social work degrees, and sadly, some people uh, were hidden. They did not identify that they had a social work degree, even though we were doing the kinds of things that Darlene mentioned, leadership, a policy, working for political leaders, in the business community, and so on. So we, the process was building the number of people involved in each of the schools of social work, and there are over 700 of them at the BSW and MSW combined. Putting those folks together in a process of collaboration and developing, looking to those, spe those specific goals over time. And that's what we're in the process, and Darlene and I could talk a little bit more specifically about some of the products um, that we've uh, worked on and that are continuing. Well, I think that would be great, actually, to hear about some specifics, um, what some of these specific things are and, and, and what some of the wins are um, that, that, that the special commission has had. Great. So we have um, various entry points for current students, um, alums. Um, we even have an entry point for folks that may not immediately identify as social workers, but are, as Terry said earlier, kindred to what we're, what we're hoping to accomplish. Um, in accomplishing the um, profession's ability to influence and shape policy, to increase leadership in our social service agencies um, through executive directors, uh, supervisory, or even board positions, um, overall enhancing organizational and community well-being. There are lots of opportunities for people to come on board. So Terry mentioned the fact that we started out with about 30 strong, um, and they were called commissioners. We then created another way for people to come on board, and we called those folks allies. And that would be one entry point for folks that wanted to be involved to join one of what we now call, we call them initially, Terry, remember our action clusters, uh, our working groups. That's right. Now we're at the action clusters. Um, the nomenclature changed, but the work still remain. Uh, and we've got folks that are heading up five or six of these focusing on specific areas. We also have individuals and organizations, largely organizations, largely our schools and departments and programs of social work that are contributing not only uh, people to be part of this movement, but also dollars. And uh, if time had allowed, we'd do a shout out to the 60 plus that are with us these days that are keeping us going. They've been able, uh, through the person power and the financial input, what we've been able to do would include just a couple of things. 
would include um, our ability to speak at political venues um, such as um, the social work on Capitol Hill days that's sponsored by CRISP um, and an opportunity to speak. Uh, Terry and I recently came back from Israel at two conferences over there with colleagues that wanted to know, well, how can I start a special commission over in Israel? As well as in our local neighborhoods, we've been working with the uh, Department of Labor, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, to find ways to make their social work entry actually mirror what's going on in the real world, uh, because macro was starting to, to disappear from there. And finding ways to convene, convene the leadership of some of our professional, our larger and major professional groups, um, such as our baccalaureate uh, programs, um, the National Association of Social Work, um, case the Council of Social Work Education, to name just a few. And we've also gotten together um, with the different slightly smaller but just as impactful organizations uh, influencing uh, social policy, um, the network for social work management. Um, we've, what we have seen ourselves doing is not only being in this movement, not only being um, advocates, but also being conveners of important conversations. So those are just a couple. Most recently what we've been doing is working to strengthen the Council on Social Work Education's um, policy uh, and procedures around accrediting uh, schools of social work. It's called EPAS, the Educational Policy uh, Accreditation Standards. We're into the era of 2015. We have been invited by the Council of Social Work Education to actually produce a guide on how can our schools and programs find um, smart ways to actually better help us reach this goal of 20 by 2020. 20% of all schools, uh, excuse me, all schools would have 20% of their students actually leaning into, if you will, uh, macro and see themselves as feeling more competent. So this guide is going to actually provide the resources uh, in terms of questions they may want to ask themselves, projects they may want to undertake, books, articles, videos, uh, like the one we produced. We have a video ourselves that's out on YouTube as well. That's one, and um, Terry and I are also in conversation about starting, uh, putting out uh, with Oxford Press and um, the National Association of Social Workers, Encyclopedia, or the very first Encyclopedia for social work, macro social work. Um, as this guide will be the very first on macro, even though it's the fifth in the series uh, from the Council of Social Work Education. So let me just add, going back to the combination of the process we engage in as, as um, we do this outreach as well as the product. So Darlene mentioned that we now have over 60 what we call macro investor schools who've contributed financially, and that's the only funds we get. You're, this is a labor of love for both of us. <laughs> Darlene, as you heard earlier, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, uh, and uh, the rest is history, but the history continues. So in addition to those 60, you, there are, um, once we had the CSWE uh, request to produce this curricular guide that um, can shape all this curriculum of, of every single school of social work should they um, adopt it. 
um, we asked the schools of social work to name a faculty member, basically donate a faculty member's time to invest it in working on what this guide would conclude. As a result, we have 75 schools of social work or programs. 75 schools took advantage of it, the largest group that CSW ever had. And so to, together between the financial contributions of social work programs by the deans and directors and the contributions in kind of faculty, we now have more than 90 schools of social work invested in macro. And we are now asking them to um, put their money where their mouth is and begin to demonstrate the uh, data, you know, show us the data um, that will uh, prove you know, the evidence, if you will, that will uh, demonstrate that we are making a difference, that the numbers are growing. And we've already gone officially uh, from about 8% of schools now to close to 11%. We think it's even higher, higher. than that. Mm -hmm. One last thing I'll say that I think would be fun for the audience to picture if they haven't ever been to one of the CSWE conferences, and we invite them. Um, the next one is in Orlando in uh, November. Um, we, we, we had a theme each year, so as organizers, we wanted to get the 2,500 or so faculty who come to us, uh, the CSWE meeting to know about us. So we had a button campaign, and every year we have a different button in a different color, um, and the first one had a big Ask Me Why Macro Matters, and we had to, be, we had to uh, convince 2,500, everybody was wearing the buttons, we ran out of buttons, and we wound up auctioning the buttons. They became a hot item. And this is, a, this is an organizing tactic, right? You have to do things interesting and innovative and novel to attract people to your cause. The next year we had, now that you know that macro matters, now make macro matter. And we had a whole list of ways, 30 ways you could make macro matter. Two years ago, it was it's time macro matters was the button. Make and then last year it was United for Macro. And Darlene mentioned these different organizations um, that have come together under a banner called United for Macro. With that, Jonathan, um, I think it's important to say that uh, the other organization that is on our banner is the Macro Social Work, the Twitter Chat Collaborative. And the other piece, uh, to which actually will directly address your question about how can students be involved, um, hopefully seek out your faculty members and help your faculty members if, if they're not jumping up and down saying, we need to do more macro here. But if there are students that are interested, they too can set up a macro social work um, student network chapter. So all of this information is on the ACOSA website it's, that's our partner, that's the birthplace, and our, continues to be our partner. And they go to the ACOSA website, which if, would be great if we could find a way to get that out. It's, um, but I can tell you right now, it's www.acosa.org, um, and that will get them close enough, and then they'll see in the upper, I think it's the left-hand corner, it'll be the special commission. We've got a, a list there of the most recent commissioners. We've got um, um, our, our, what we call our two-pager that gives some of the information that we're referencing now about some of the products that we have um, 
been able to accomplish. And folks will have an opportunity to contact either the two of us or anyone else that's on this uh, commission to actually become even more active. We are looking for, for more folks, even though we're growing exponentially. This is, it's not a flash thing. This is a truly a movement that's been started. One of the things that, that micro focused faculty and students are always complaining about is that there's never enough time in the curriculum to get all of the micro content that they want. And what you're saying is actually we want more opportunities for macro content. And, and I think that this speaks to a conceptual divide that most people in theory would say is, is a false dichotomy. Right? Exactly. Either micro or macro. Right. And yet it persists. And in, and in fact, the whole point of this episode is to emphasize the importance of, of, of macro. But um, could you talk about some, uh, some concrete steps that schools and programs can take to increase this balance between micro and macro in programs, either at the, the programmatic level or, or even what individuals can do? Uh, and I think you're you're 100% right that, and as I said in the beginning, academia has made this artificial divide. Um, but some of our generalist programs um, that are looking at the connections, they've got this down. They already know how to do it. And the other place for students to be able to really see the micro-macro um, bridge is right there in their field placements. Field has been doing this forever. While we may have a field organization, a social service organization that works primarily with individuals and families, doesn't get involved in the advocacy and working uh, with policy, they too know that if you ignore the community in which a person lives and if we turn a blind eye to the policies that are impacting these individuals, the best policies are those that work because they paid attention to where the people are at. And the best organizations are those that pay attention to the needs of the people, not only who they serve, but the people that make up that organization. So that if, if we could find a way to go back to real life and look at this as a continuum and look at it as an entire client system, we wouldn't have to worry so much about not having enough time. The examples and the opportunities, the richness is right there in everyday life. I have a couple of examples to, to build on that. And for example, if you get five, you have five clients and the last four weeks uh, you, you had to make uh, five calls to Medicaid to get somebody a benefit or to the landlord who was um, evicting somebody. Doesn't it make sense from your own self-interest to bring those five people together? Or to say, maybe we should have a talk with the landlord. Or maybe can we set up a meeting with the Medicaid administrator? So the, this vision of, you know, it's not a whole different animal out there. Um, we sometimes, we do say that, you know, oh, I, I admire community organizers. They're great. I couldn't do it. Well, they do do it because they, they are connecting with systems. They are connecting with management. They are connecting with their public officials. They do work with media. They do go to other departments and do interdisciplinary work. They don't often label it or name it. So a lot of what we're doing is kind of naming it. That's what we mean by community organizing, not just mass uh, protests, you know, downtown at City Hall or in Washington. That's part of it. That's a tactic, right? Social action tactics. 
but the goal is to create as CSWE and NASW say in their code, is to create well-being for individuals and for the society. So we are a unique profession and we love our social work profession because we are, we deal with person in environment, right? We call that PI. It's not person and or, environment. Or right? person or environment. Person or environment, right? It's person in. They're inextricably linked. You may raise one up or the other. But that's what we mean by that integration or the rebalancing, if that's helpful. That's very helpful. And, you know, I love this example of the caseworker who is interacting with what we think of as, you know, uh, um, kind of a more macro level. Right. The, the Medicaid or or housing um, or it could be. Uh, another system, uh, mm -hmm. juvenile justice or child welfare, like any of the systems. So the individual work that we do interacts with these larger macro systems. Um, uh, I guess it would be helpful for me to hear um, uh, of other examples of things that folks should think about or could think about as ways to integrate the the micro and the macro kind of like that one. And and I'll just say one other thing about that is that I I think that the challenge, of course, is that we don't talk about how do you do your job as, um, you know, as the caseworker maintaining confidentiality, et cetera, et cetera, and then still get paid to do a community organizing function um, if that's not your job in the agency? You know, Jonathan, one of the things that I think is important to realize is that we're always going to lean one, we're always going to feel more comfortable in one space or not. And we're not saying that people shouldn't want to be um, clinical micro practitioners or people shouldn't want to be identified as macro practitioners. Um, working directly with organizations or communities or <clears throat> working directly in policy making. What I'm trying to say is that it's okay to say I'm going to specialize in, I'm going to focus on working primarily with individuals and the office down the hall is going to focus on working more with, with the small groups and working with organizations at large. But it would be remiss and horrible and actually detrimental to not only our profession but to everyone that we serve if folks graduate not understanding the larger context. Right. We have, um, talking about being remiss, there will be a special issue of the journal Reflections that will be coming out that will actually look at different ways that many of the authors have used, authors of the articles that contributed to this special issue, uh, that they've used to actually bridge this divide. And again, it's a, it's a person-made divide, and um, it's, it's an academic divide. It's not a real-world divide. And all we're asking is that <clears throat> more people are, are educated in a way that will allow them to actually understand the interconnections and the interdependencies. The vast majority of good clinical practitioners are promoted within the first or second years of their practice into supervisory and then oftentimes even into higher management positions. And imagine how much more they'd be able to do if they came out with a little bit 
more of a grounding even in terms of appreciating the whole client system. So I, let me uh, just add to what Darlene just said uh, about language, you know, and reframing things. Mm -hmm. Because again, I think as we've all said now, in the real world, people are providing training and they're organizing conferences and they have to do outreach and they have to involve their constituencies and they often call on them their, their clients or their, uh, their community member when things are in crisis. And of course we know that that's not enough of a time to say, please go to bat for us, right? Please go to Albany or please go to state capital or please go to Washington or to your city hall um, to uh, advocate. You think we're doing a good job? Okay, yes, you tell us that, but you have to tell them. So I'm always telling social workers the politics of thank you. This is what I call it. The next time you're thanked, and they all are thanked privately, they get cards, they put letters up. I said, who else needs to know that you were thanked? And I was even go as far as I started this with President Bush. Did he know? Does President Obama still have to say, does President Trump and his administration know the valued contribution you are making? And, and I think that's where social workers need to come out of the woodwork, if you will, because the titles for macro jobs aren't always social work, right? They're not looking, so they may be a policy analyst or a community coordinator or a program developer. And so we talk to students and to faculty as to feature on their website the alumni from the schools who've moved into or are doing macro practice. And we have gotten many schools now to put videos together to show, and here's the quote, this is what social work looks like. And when you click on this is what social work looks like, or I didn't know you could do this in social work, quote unquote, which we hear very often, they didn't know about these macro level opportunities in the profession, click on here and you see this, your wonderful alumni doing wonderful things. And uh, uh, many of the schools have done that. So I think the reframing of Lang, that this, yes, that is community organizing. Yes, that is part of macro practice, uh, to be a public speaker, to give testimony, to bring your clients and organize them to, to get a teach-in and so on. And one example about the bigger, bigger picture, Jonathan says we might be ending soon on the what society does. American society, by design, proudly identifies itself since I teach policy as well, um, as an individualistic society. So if you're a, if a society that values the individual, and that goes with liberty and freedom, and the herd would be seen, as Darlene said, the herd would be seen as oppressive. You know, it's the difference between the, uh, you know, is it a web or is, is the network, you know, a web or does it liberate you? Um, and so even the term self-help groups to, to um, to, to uh, move the analogies. We talk about self-help groups, and I say to students, what is a self-help group? Well, what they really mean are the, the programs that are run by people who have the problem. So sometimes they're called 12-step programs. But you know what? There's nothing self and individual. It's all mutual aid. So if we call them mutual aid groups instead of self-help, realizing that people who join those groups know they can't do it alone. They must be part of a community. And those groups are empowering and help people and get liberate them and help them realize that they're not in the they're uh, in this alone. And that's the connection that we want to make between the individual 
and the community or the individual and environment or individual and society. Well, I'm, I'm sure that Alex Gitterman is very happy that you were promoting um, mutual aid groups in that moment. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we give um, to Alex every chance we get. <laughs> yes, uh, a, a true social work treasure. Um, are there any last things that you want to bring up, um, topics that you think are important, or not just topics, um, points that you think are really important for folks to understand about case to cause, moment to movement, uh, product and process, as we think about um, macro social work um, and the profession? I think the, the part about social work history is important and valuing ourselves. So this is a little more philosophical rather than uh, pragmatic. But I think that social workers, as much as I love our profession for its humility, I don't think we take enough credit and I don't think we advance ourselves enough in that more social and um, political and um, civic arena. I think people do it a lot. Social workers work a lot. You know, we are the largest mental health quote provider, you know, in, in crises and the Red Cross, social workers volunteer, but they're not told. So I want social workers to be proud, call themselves social workers, identify themselves, tell, explain to people that, yes, we do a complex job but we, and we have multiple clients, or as Darlene used the term, the client system. You know, that we're all connected and all con and being connected doesn't diminish the individual. So I think that's the, that's what I would sort of like to leave folks, that there's a home and a community and the, the macro end of social work is an integral part of it and that we have a proud history that um, we, I think we need to bring to the fore. And I think that's what we've done when I was president of NASW um, at the turn of the century, I say the turn of this century, it sounds so old, <laughs> but I was president from 2000 to 2003, uh, seems like a long time. We brought a summit together of all the social work organizations. It's all about making these connections and which, that build the strength um, and the base of social work in the larger arena. Come back to what I think I said in the beginning, a report just came out this week by CSWE called the future of social work or the futures. And if you look at that, along with something called the grand challenges, and these terms are, you know, if one Googles them, you'll, you'll come up with this, um, with what these are in more detail. But the grand challenges, the futures in social work is all about macro involvement, macro related practice. So we think that it, it's already kind of rebalanced, but I think we have to figure out ways to recognize that we're all one big, we want one big family and hopefully we'll become one big happier family. <laughs> I would, I would agree with everything that, that Terry said. Um, I would close personally by saying that um, we always say start where the client is at. We never say end where the client is at. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind. If we look at what has moved society, our country, if we look at other countries, what has moved us globally? Um, while Mother Teresa did it one person at a time, uh, Mother Teresa touched a lot of individual people so that she actually started a movement herself. And what we're hoping to do is to shine a light on the fact that one person's important and more than one person 
uh, other people, that we are all interconnected, actually create a movement. And that's what's, get, that's what's gotten our society, our world, moving forward. If we've got one person that's been um, violated um, either by her family or by a societal um, policy, um, we've got human trafficking, et cetera, et cetera, we don't pay attention to that and until we realize that it's affecting more than one person. What goes on with one person nine times out of ten, almost a hundred times out of a hundred, will actually be infecting other people as well. We've got Black Lives Matter, we've got the Me Too movement, we've got DACA, we've got all that's going on now that were triggered by individuals, but the power, Occupy movement, the gun control, it's triggered, no pun intended there at all, please forgive me, <laughs> uh, by the fact that people have recognized that we can't do it alone. One person can't do it alone. We've got to do it together. We're interconnected, we're interdependent, and the power of our multiple voices, what we call the multivocality of uh, our speaking out, is what gets the attention and what begs and advocates for the change. As we said at the very beginning, we've only just begun, and we're looking for more people, more kindred others out there that are excited by the opportunity to actually do what they do best, be it focusing on individuals or focusing on families or focusing on organizations, focusing on communities, working through policy change to actually join up with the special commission. We need you and everyone we serve deserves you. Beautiful. Darlene and Terry, thank you so much for being here on the podcast today and talking with us about the special commission, about macro social work, and about all of the connections um, in the classroom and out in the field. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Jonathan. You're Thanks welcome. so much. Take good care. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.